What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, and this is Squawk Pod. It's the post-Christmas week, but we're still here bringing you all the news that got us squawking. Recession watch in 2024? Open AI worth how many billions? Grinchy retailers charging return fees and oops, no Apple Watch under the tree. People getting Apple gift cards yesterday won't be able to buy an Apple Watch with them today. And holiday cheer for the airlines? Flight attendant union head Sarah Nelson says unruly travelers are few and far between. There seems to be a real working class solidarity happening out there. Everybody knows that we're in this together. And we'll bring you all this week Squawk Box conversations from throughout 2023. Becky Quick and Joanne Littman on the disaster return to office mandates have created for mothers. If you want to find the most efficient people out there, find working moms. No kidding. It's Tuesday, December 26th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Today on the podcast, we'll start with the weird economy in 2023. A solid labor market, higher average hourly pay, resilient consumer spending, and a stock market rebound. Wait, weren't we supposed to have a recession? Contessa Brewer, Leslie Picker, and CNBC economics reporter Steve Leisman hash all these things out today. Here's Contessa. Economists just won't put the recession debate to bed Steve's been looking into it. Why do they want to focus so much on the threat of looming recession? They can't let it go, Contessa. Economists reflecting in their commentary over the weekend, what happened to the recession they forecast with so much certainty? And is it coming next year? Take a look. Through three quarters of this year, GDP's average about 3%. Estimates put it between 1.5% and 3% in the fourth quarter. It's weaker probably from that strong uh, third quarter we had. But it was a year overall of above potential growth and not a recession. I really like this quote from Scott Anderson from Bank of the West. He says, I can't recall a time in my long career when the U.S. economy so impressively beat the odds and surpassed expectations as much as it did over the past 12 months. But can it keep defying the odds, contestants our gambling reporter, mm-hmm. an inverted yield curve, an historic surge in the Fed funds rate, and months of lead- leading negative indicators, negative leading indicators have been screaming recession, and now it looks like help is on the way. Just as the economy entered that fourth quarter slowdown, yields began to fall sharply, providing 100 basis points of stimulus in the form of lower interest rates to the economy. Stocks buoyed by hopes of Fed rate cuts next year. Over at Citi, they're writing, although our base case involves a recession around the middle of 2024, so they're not giving it up, they add the probability of a downturn is reduced by the unexpected stimulus from looser financial conditions. That includes a higher stock market price. But... John Riding, good friend of the show here at Breen Capital, thinks it all comes too late. He says the recession that we saw beginning in late 2023 has been delayed, not canceled. They see a 60% chance of a recession next year brought on by lower profits and a decline in capital spending. So there are some other doubling down on the recession calls. They don't believe in what I'm calling deus ex monetary policy. You know, if we remember that from English class? No. 
that Deus Ex Machi and I remember that? Yeah, God yes. from machine, that was God from Latin man. class for me, but, yeah, but okay, I don't English class. English class for Deus you. Deus Ex Monetary Policy. Here's the question. If we were sitting around a poker table mm -hmm. and these guys had a losing hand, they made a bad bet, basically they were wrong, they're saying, no, 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 we're all in on a recession. We're well, just, it's well, just it's affirmation bias, right? You Maybe. I'm not sure they're all in. I mean, 60% probability is not 100% probability, though it is an elevated probability. But if you're saying it's not been canceled, it's just delayed, it's not a matter of if, yeah. but when. I, I, I was wondering last night if economists should be forecasting recessions at all. I'm just not sure it's if helpful. If not, then who? Well, I'm just wondering, like, on what basis? When has anybody really ever been right in making a recession call? Well, how much of it is More just... often they hit you when you don't think about it or know it's coming. And it may be the recession call itself creates the conditions for not having a recession in the sense of companies pulling back. We talked about this pre-session idea. Pre-session. Which well, is companies scaling back ahead of a recession. Right. Creating a lower probability of a recession. Which is kind of remarkable. I mean, we did talk about the 60,000 job cuts on Wall Street, but otherwise the employment market's been very strong. What's interesting, and, and you're a, a fantastic economic historian, so you can probably answer this, is that when you look back, first of all, there was a historic rate rise. So I think economists were just kind of modeling this in the way that they've always done it and said, if you have rates going up this quickly right. to this extent, of course you're going to have a recession because that's what's happened every other time you've seen a rate increase at this capacity. So not kind of, and I think it was one of the economists you cited, not putting into the, you know, their model, the idea that the looser financial conditions, whatever the market I think, did. I think the mistake that's been made was not holding out the possibility of things being substantially different this time for reasons that were very different. Everybody tried to fit the model of what was happening in the 70s, right? You had this right. surge in inflation in the 70s. The Fed even followed this model and said, we can't give it up now because of the idea that it, back in the 70s, inflation came back. Um, after most of these uh, uh, efforts of the Fed to fight inflation, recessions tend to happen. That's how you get recessions. Um, but the idea that this was a pandemic, there was a ton of slack in the economy, slack in the labor market. The idea that the Fed was very loose for a long time, allowed people to lock in rates. It's a whole lot of things. I could spend a lot of time spending, you know, telling you why this time was different. I'm reminded of something somebody told me once, which is that the worst phrase in financial um, in, in finance is things are different this time. Right. The second worst phrase, things are going to be exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And it was more the second phrase here that I think got economists and to, to really forecast this recession that didn't happen. And I think there's a good chance we avoid it this time again this next year because of the differences. There's, that there's also a discounting of optimism of the American consumer and the, the hope that inflation and rising prices and whatever are going better jobs better wages that that we are uh, we and we can see the effect on the economy when people even when prices are higher at the grocery store and at the car lot people still went out and spent even despite these terrible sentiment numbers they were out spending right mm -hmm. i mean that was really what's been quite remarkable the sentiment numbers were terrible the spending numbers have been great they're saying one thing and doing something else
the artificial intelligence company that burst into everyone's awareness in 2023, OpenAI, led by Sam Altman, is reportedly in talks to raise a fresh round of funding with a valuation around, ready for this, $100 billion. That number would make it one of the most valuable private companies in the world. Terms, valuation, and timing have not been finalized and could still change. This was in Bloomberg, and according to that same report, OpenAI has also held talks to raise funding for a new chip venture, with Abu Dhabi-based G42 for between $8 and $10 billion. As you'll hear, it's unclear if the two funding talks are related. OpenAI uh, declined to comment on that, but of course that would be pretty uh, quick to go back to the market and raise more funding at a $100 billion valuation. What do we think it was worth? Do we know? I mean, is that higher, lower? I mean, I guess nobody really had a valuation before that. Yeah, I mean, we don't know the financials. Right. So we don't know kind of how it compares with their discounted cash flows of the future, if there are cash flows for the future. Uh, interestingly, though, in your wheelhouse, Steve, he, Sam Altman tweeted this morning about kind of the interplay between rates uh, and kind of innovation. And he says that when capitalists have run out of ideas, the interest rates will go to zero. Seemed like a very interesting observation to me over most of the last decade. But now I'm interested in the inverse. When we have more and better ideas than ever before, what will happen to rates? So it's kind of an interesting thing so, in your you wheelhouse. Know, I, I, no, I did this story before, which is I did, I did a story talking to some of the uh, you know leading investors, uh, guys like Mark Cuban and Glenn Hutchins, people like that. What happens to interest rates because of AI? And I got three different answers. One was that um, interest rates would go up because of the demand for capital to invest in AI. Right. Others said, well, over time, interest rates would come down because of the productivity. And then the third answer was a mix of the two. And then I asked an AI chatbot, what happens <laughs> to interest rates? I can't wait to hear this. What happens to interest rates because of AI? And the chatbot came back and said, well, they could go up because of the demand for capital. Huh. They could um, go down because of productivity, or it could be a mix of the three. So I spent 12 days reporting that story, and I got the answer back from AI in 30 seconds. Well, that just proves the point about productivity. I'm games, leaving I guess. right now. You can just plug in anything I might say. <laughs> but here. do you know that they've already started to do this? That AI, they, there are literally news anchors that they have invented with AI who give you a facial expression. They can be really serious. They can use their hand gestures and all of this. And you think, well, it's pretty good. Really, they, they know how to hit the right inflection, how to punch those certain words. What do they need us for? If you can do 12 days of reporting in what well, chatbot it was, was Yeah, but yeah. Oh, but here's the thing. I'm thinking nobody invents this particular face. Oh, that's AI. Not, I think oh, I think it ends up it's, being pretty. It's unique. beyond the, the right, powers exactly, of technology. Exactly. <laughs> I, my, 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 my belief has long been that people who are scanning cable would stop on me to say, well, this guy, the only reason he's on TV, Absolutely. he must know something that he's talking about. <laughs> If you're looking to return an item after the holidays, be prepared to spend more. Some retailers are adding new fees. Amazon, Macy's, and others have added fees or shortened the window for returning items purchased online. Now, about 40% of retailers charge for online returns, and that number is growing, as Contessa, Leslie, and Steve talked about this morning on the Squawk Set. You really need to read the return policies in order to avoid fees. But I'll tell you what, nothing would disrupt customer loyalty, I would think, like 
placing big return fees when... How much are these fees uh, we're talking about? I, I've never seen one. Jump. Yeah, what, you don't probably return that much stuff, right? No. And and if you do it, do you go into the store to return it? No. no. I don't really no. buy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I'm, just, I'm just saying, it happened to me once this year, a big ticket item from a big uh, company that we follow. You don't want to name it. I, I just don't like doing those kind of shout okay. outs. You know, like, I don't want to punish anybody, but... Right. But there was a huge fee associated with a product that did not get delivered as promised. And I had to spend an hour on hold in order to avoid the fee of returning this item that was not. Was the fee disclosed? Do we were aware of the fee? Uh, no, I don't think I looked at. I well, did not read the, the fine print. Who, right. But who does, especially when you're purchasing something from a place? Because this to me, when you see a jump like that, that means that places you purchased from last year that didn't have fees to return. But do now you know have how, fees, but, so like you're not going to read it. Every okay, but time shipping you make that or like drop it costs. It, say Amazon, you can go drop your package off at at a drop off point and and save the fees on returning it. But for Amazon, there's real cost to accepting returns and managing returns. There are for all of these big retailers, and so uh, the the well, you can understand why. Me, they, but that's the business they're in. Mm. They came forward and said we're better than going to the yeah. store. Because you can return it free, free, without a fee. And now all of a sudden they're saying, I think that all of this sends up, we're going back to the stores. Well, which, yeah. I mean, I didn't, I didn't go in any malls this weekend. But, you did not. Um, yeah. I, so you'll pay the fee? About it, how, much would, how much of a fee would you pay? Well, I would not pay. I would not pay. I so would you just go to order the store from somewhere that didn't no, have a I mean, fee. That's what I'm saying. Like, if you want to lose my business permanently, and I do buy stuff. Yeah, uh, uh, I'll you, bet. you want my business, right? If you want, if you want to lose my business permanently, charge me for returning something. Yeah, it's a good Although, way to do it. Ooh. I think also, I, I buy lower ticket items online. There was an article today about Amazon, uh, you know, offering cars online. I don't, right. know, I don't know if I'm there yet, but usually the thing you buy online. Do you ask I, about the return policy for the car? What, what if I don't like this car? Can I bring this you car back to the dealership? You must be able to return it if you can't test drive it. That would be a precondition, I would think. If you can't test drive it, you have to be able to return it. A midnight deadline came and went for President Biden to overturn a U.S. International Trade Commission ruling that will prevent Apple from selling the Apple Watch Series 9 and Apple Watch Ultra 2 because they violate patents registered to another company. It appeared unlikely President Biden would intervene before the deadline passed at the end of Christmas. Now, Apple has already removed the watch models from its online store, and Apple brick-and-mortar locations are expected to open today without any of the latest top-of-the-line watches in Stock. Did that make it a less than rosy Christmas for Apple? We took a look at the holiday season's winners and losers in technology. A lot of people got a lot of new toys yesterday, but other people were just, you know, sitting there tapping away on their iPhones and their devices, which also may have been new. Steve Kovac joins us now with a look at who won Christmas. Yeah, when it comes to tech. Those devices were probably new, and this is why it's fun to look on Christmas Day at Apple's App Store rankings. You get kind of this snapshot in time of data as people are activating their new phones. You get the trends of what new iPhone owners are downloading as soon as they boot up their phone, plus accessories and other gadgets. So look, the big winner yesterday, Meta. The Quest app was at the top of the App Store on Christmas Day, and that points to a lot of people activating those new headsets. That's the um, in fall of the 
Quest uh, Meta Quest 3, rather, the VR headset. That's about 500 bucks. It's going to start competing with Apple, which will launch its uh, Vision Pro coming up pretty soon here. This is going to be a real battle starting early next year between these two VR headsets. Gaming was another theme, though, also kind of playing to this VR thing. The Xbox app was number seven. PlayStation was number 11, number 12, kind of floating around there. But look, first year, those consoles, the PlayStation 5 and the latest Xboxes, are available after supply chain problems have plagued them for the last three years. Right behind Meta, though, we have Alexa. That also points to a lot of Echo devices under trees. Alexa tends to be one of those top devices uh, every year, kind of gifted around. It used to be Fitbit, now it's Echoes. But look, the thing we got to talk about, guys, Apple Watch. That ban goes into effect today. So people getting Apple gift cards yesterday won't be able to buy an Apple Watch with them today. Okay, so, so the cheaper price, less bells and whistles model, not affected? Of the, of the Apple Watch. Right. Yes, yeah, so that's called the iPhone, I mean, the Apple Watch SE, which is kind of the, this is all a patent dispute over that blood oxygen sensor in the latest and greatest Apple Watches. The SE is kind of a stripped down version of the Apple Watch. It costs under 300 bucks. You can get that. A lot of people buy it for their kids so they can track them and things like that. But it's not the latest and greatest. If you want that blood oxygen sensor, you're going to either have to, I don't know, go to Canada or something to get it. But but was it already for sale? Like, what did that yeah, particular was, watch already showed up under? Oh yeah. Trees? This, the, the, so look, the ban went into effect uh, on Christmas Eve. They uh, Apple was selling them in Apple stores up to the end of day, Christmas Eve. You can buy them in stores. The ban went into effect online on Thursday of last week. But uh, you can maybe find them in third-party stores like Best Buy or something. Best Buy, let's say they have a warehouse full of 100 of them. They can sell those out, but Apple cannot. So how much does it question. matter, Steve? Right. Uh, it, it depends on how long this ban lasts. It's just a small piece, though, of it's the It's a small piece. Revenue. Morgan Stanley did, uh, analysts did some estimates uh, last week when this all came about that they were actually going to pause their sales. Uh, it could impact up to 2% of revenue. And here's why that's important, Steve, because Apple is struggling to return to top-line revenue growth. So that 2%, yes, doesn't sound like a lot. Yes, it's not an iPhone ban. But when you're trying to grow uh, top-line revenue again, every little bit counts, and that's going to make it that much harder for Apple to return to top-line growth. Steve, thank you. Thanks, guys. Next on Squawk Pod, how many flights did you take this holiday season? Our next guest probably has you beat. It's Sarah Nelson, international president of the Association of Flight Attendants. Our very first contract at United Airlines in 1946 had an eight-hour day. It's very common that flight attendants today are working 14, 15, 16-hour days. That means more takeoffs and landing. That means more time that you're working with the passengers and not getting paid. Negotiating contracts and unruly passengers, all in a day's work. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 
electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Pack your patience. Bah humbug. AAA predicts airports will be the busiest ever this holiday season. That means 7.5 million air travelers between Christmas and New Year's, passing 2019's pre-pandemic record of 7.3 million. We're back, baby! Here's Contessa Brewer, Leslie Picker, and Steve Leisman. Contessa kicks things off. Well, it looks like... Santa may just have brought good weather and easy flying for everyone who was getting on board trains or planes or automobiles. For a look at how the, how the airlines are handling the holiday travel surge, let's bring in Sarah Nelson, international president of the Association of Flight Attendants. Her union represents nearly 50,000 flight attendants at 20 airlines, many of whom I know were working over the long holiday weekend and we appreciate their hard work. Nice to see you, Sarah. Nice to see you too, and thank you so much. Let's start with the news first off. It looks like there was still some hiccups for Southwest on the heels of that $140 million fine that the DOT handed down for last year's just complete meltdown. In this case, Southwest blamed it on, say, fog in Chicago, and it looked like everything was going to resolve. What grade would you give Southwest in particular and more broadly the airlines over the weekend for handling the massive crowds? I think we're sitting here at um, a solid B. And um, that is not just because of the airlines. I think it's really important to recognize that this has been a joint effort between airports, uh, the government, and the airlines. The TSA workers are, uh, have been attracted to the job because Administrator Pekoski moved them to the general schedule like other federal workers, like they've been working for so long to do. That was essentially a 30% pay increase, which allowed them to staff up and have enough TSA workers to move people through those security lines, which was a big part of this. And the airlines have uh, accepted the uh, concerns that we've raised over the last year, saying you have not put the investments back into the airlines to make sure that you have enough staff to be able to run the operation to reschedule all of those things. Um, the, the ongoing issues are just that not all of the contracts done and all of the flight attendant contracts are up right now. Uh, and those need to get resolved to, soon too. But we have said over this last year, you've got to invest in the airlines. You've got to get these contracts done before you give $1 in stock buybacks to Wall Street. And so far, so good. Okay, so pilots in large part have come away with really impressive salary gains in their just completed contracts. Southwest just recently raised pilots' wages 50% over five years. We saw a similar trajectory at United and Delta and American. Do you think this bodes well for flight attendants in pressing their concerns? Well, I will tell you that this is on the heels of 20 years of austerity, the bankruptcies following 9-11, and then uh, during uh, all of the consolidation, there was not really a major step forward for workers. So we were just barely getting back to the level that we were prior to 9-11, if adjusted for inflation. And this was always expected that this would be a major step forward. It was supposed to happen in 2020. The pandemic put that on hold. 
But these increases for pilots are exactly what other workers are expecting, and they need it uh, because it has been a long time coming. So the expectations are very high, and the airlines are going to need to understand that uh, this is not a pilot-only problem. This is going to have to get resolved throughout the workforce. I was surprised to read that flight attendants don't get paid for time when passengers are boarding, which can be long, yeah. I know, as a passenger yeah. myself. I, it's does true. It, does that, does that, that issue, and I know that that's one of the issues for the contracts, is getting paid for that. Do, will mm -hmm. that matter if your pay gets made up in other areas? So this is an antiquated pay system from uh, the 1930s, the pilot contracts actually, and then airline workers were exempted from the Fair Labor Standards Act, which has meant that we've had to try to get those, that pay in other ways. What has happened is that our days have become much longer. Our very first contract at United Airlines in 1946 had an eight-hour day. It's very common that flight attendants today are working 14, 15, 16-hour mm. days. That means more takeoffs and landing. That means more time that you're working with the passengers and not getting paid. And in a situation today, like, uh, like we have, with all the cost cutting that has happened, cutting back staffing to very, the very minimum, filling those planes as much as possible, every single seat, of course, our jobs are much harder too. So this has been a more recent issue that we have not been able to get at uh, because contract bargaining has not been about moving forward uh, for essentially the last 20 years. And we're going to get at it now. There's way too much ground time, made, right. made too much time, way too much time on the job that we're not getting paid. And there's no way to make that up in other ways, like the airlines would like to tell you. Sarah, I, I want to spend just a second just to say thanks to all the flight attendants and the pilots. I do a lot of flying on the holidays and they're always so great on those days, especially even the TSA agents. So my question, first of all, I want to just confirm, you're under, some contracts go back to 2012, 2014. Is that right? That some of these contracts have not been negotiated in more than a decade? That's exactly correct, wow. yes. And, and so uh, the Railway Labor Act, contracts become amendable. They don't expire. And so that means that these uh, contract negotiations can just go on and on. We're really bringing that to a head. And you're going to see uh, right. protesting. You're going to see flight attendants across the country protesting on February but, but the 13th, thing I wanna, actually. The thing I wanted to ask you about was this, not that. I want yeah. to confirm that. Are people nastier now? Are, oh, are the passengers well, meaner, <laughs> angrier? Oh. You know, whenever you bring a bunch of humanity together in a closed space, you're going to have issues. And when you have fewer staff to be able to address those issues, temperatures can rise fast. But this is what I will say, Steve. Uh, the people who come to our door, for the most part, are kind. And actually, what I saw uh, this week as I was traveling out to my mom's was a, every worker doing an amazing job in the airport. And every passenger saying thank you and expressing gratitude. And there seems to be a real working class solidarity happening out there. Everybody knows that we're in this together. And I have to say, we still have these major events, but they are a fraction of the people. And most people want to be kind and express kindness Maybe and help each other along. No, it's the Taylor Swift effect. What's that? <laughs> if everything else is Taylor Swift, I'm pretty sure that the fact that passengers are kinder is the Taylor Swift effect, too. Sarah, thank you it for helps. joining us. <laughs> Thank Happy you so New much. Year. Happy New Year to you. Just my theory. <laughs> well, I like it. And also some good news to, to close the segment. Coming up on Squawk Pod, women in the workplace. The female employment rate is up to 75, even 80%. But author and journalist Joanne Lippman warns leaders have to be mindful of mothers if they want to keep that number high. 
The problem is now with the return to office mandates, there's a potential that we could really roll back and reverse some of those gains. Becky Quick and Joanne Littman are up next. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. I'm producer Katie Kramer. During the pandemic, we covered something Wall Street dubbed the She Session. (laughs) Say that five times fast, or even once. When COVID-19 shut down the travel, retail, and education industries, those are workplaces dominated by women. And the economic downturn that followed disproportionately hurt that group of workers. It wasn't so different from the 2008 financial crisis, which was dubbed a man session. The industries affected at that time included manufacturing and construction, spaces dominated by men. Becky Quick spoke to journalist Joanne Littman about how return to office mandates are affecting working women after the she session. The remote work trend thrived during the pandemic, but as things recovered, so did mandates that require employees to come back to the office. Since April, women's workforce participation has reached record levels in spite of that. And joining us right now is Joanne Littman. She's a Yale University lecturer, also a CNBC contributor. Her latest op-ed in The Wall Street Journal argues that the return to office mandates are a disaster for working moms. And Joanne, hi. Hi, Becky. I, be I didn't realize this is the first time you've been in studio with us. It is. Since COVID, it's the first time, and I'm so happy to be here with you. It is great to have you here. So uh, women's participation in the workforce skyrocketed at a point, w- because when COVID first hit, women had to stay home. W- women of small children, I should say, had to right. stay home because kids weren't in schools. There were all kinds of things that were happening. So a lot of moms quit. A lot of moms dropped out of the workforce. And then what happened? Right, right. And a lot of women lost their jobs because of the, you know, they were in hospitality or travel, right? right? Um, And then, and at that time, if you recall, we were in the she session and everybody said, you know, 30 years of gains wiped out. It's never coming back. Janet Yellen said this could be permanent scarring. And here we are, almost exactly three years later, April of this year, we reached this record level, 75% plus every month since then of women in the workforce. And what's really interesting, women of young children under the age of 10, it's almost 80%. And clearly what happened is you have remote and hybrid work, and then you pair that with the rollback of the COVID restrictions on schools and daycares, and suddenly women, particularly college-educated women who have jobs that you're able to do remotely, suddenly they're able to participate in the workforce in a way that they never were able to do before, which is fantastic. The problem is now with the return to office mandates, we're sort of disconnecting. We're sort of really not acknowledging how important this is for women. And we we really have, um, there's a potential that we could really roll back and reverse some of those gains. And we've seen that to this point because some of the mandates that come in require that you're there three days a week, maybe four days a week. Is, is that a problem for women too? So it could be. Uh, look, when you and I, and I'm older than you are, when our kids were 
again, when our kids were babies, like if anybody ever said to me, you only have to show up three days a week. Right. Could you oh imagine? Oh my God. <laughs> that would be the greatest gift ever. Um, but we are in this world now where you've got women who have, you know, two and three and four kids who, who were marginalized before. And I think about, you know, when my own kids were babies, I, you and I have stayed in the workforce the whole time and we know how brutal it sacrifice. is. We know how brutal it is. Yeah. Most of my female friends who were super, you know, educated, intelligent, had great jobs, most of them either went part-time, they got mar mommy tracked, if they could afford it, they quit. And we lost all of these really high potential women. Okay, let me push back a little bit. Sure. Um, what happens to the people who are forced to come into the office when their coworkers aren't? Um, how, how do you manage that situation? How do you manage that system of what feels like inequity? Are there pay differentials that go with it? Yeah, so first of all, the thing, I mean, I'm not arguing for that you should never come into the office. I mean, you know, I've been a manager for many, many years, right. and I know how important being on the premises is, you know, for collaboration and mentoring, just learning how to do your job. I mean, my very first job was at the Wall Street Journal, and I was right out of college, <laughs> right, right? Yeah. And how, do, how did we learn how to do the job? Is your everybody in the office Everybody, these more senior journalists around you, that's how you learn. So, so I'm a big believer that we do need some of that time. I think the issue is that some of these return to office mandates, they're coming with increased flexibility. And, you know, I was talking to the folks at Charter who study um, future of work, and they were saying, CEOs are getting more and more and more rigid as they go. They're really yeah. pressuring. And the rigidity, I think, is where the problem comes in. Okay, I'll, I'll even take the other side of that, though. Sometimes the problem is not a rigidity. The, the idea is that there are people who feel like they get to do what they want and people who feel like they don't get to do that. And if you looked at a lot of the workers who came through the entire way through the pandemic, um, you know, there, there are people who couldn't work from home. And yes. you've got a workplace full of people who have to be on site in front of customers and those who don't have to be that can be to lead to a lot of different resentments in the workplace yeah look there, there's no perfect solution here but the point that i'm making though is we now have <clears throat> we have now created a system where there's a lot of women who need to work and also want to work right who were not who were marginalized before so now they have an opportunity so what we need to do is think about how do we create a workplace where we do have the in-person time, mm -hmm. but perhaps where we're not marginalizing people who maybe you know need a little bit more flexibility. And by the way, we only need that little flexibility not for all time, right? right? It's basically when your kids are little, and that's why I'm saying the big percentage increase. Or when they're sick or something. Or when they're sick, but yeah. the big percentage increase is really for women with little kids, like preschoolers, kids under 10, very young kids. That's where they need the most flexibility, and that's where we lose them and if we become too rigid. Yet. And right. then their careers are derailed, and even if they take off time and they want to come back, they will never reach those professional heights. And so we want to make sure that we don't lose these really high potential women. I guess it's a it's a thoughtful process for, yes. for managers to look at and, and kind of find ways to do that flexibility. And by the way, I think managers are more likely to be flexible when you have a tight labor market like we've had and you need headcount. It's, it's less easy to pull off uh, at a time when you have higher unemployment levels. Yeah, very true, very true. 
but I do think, you know, look, it's a positive that we have more women in the workforce and we right. need them in a, in a tight labor no, market and they contribute to the economy. Plus, these are women who truly, truly, truly want to be in the workforce. So right. let's try and think about hey, I've, I've ways. I've for years, if you want to find the most efficient people out there, find working moms. No kidding. They are efficient workers. <laughs> they find ways to get things done very quickly. So uh, true. Yeah. Joanne, thanks a lot. Thanks, Becky. Great to have you here. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening and happy Boxing Day. This podcast brings you the best of CNBC's morning show, Squawk Box, every day in about a 30-minute version that you can listen to at any time. So follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts and get started. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.